God's Spirit is with us. This is what makes this gathering different than any other kind of religious gathering in the world and in history. Because no other faith, no matter what they tell you, no matter how hard they try to convince you, no matter what documents they have or texts they have, can truly say and die for the reality that when the people of God meet, the people of God meet with God. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry. And I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us. And I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We have begun a series, a shorter series, I mean comparatively, of a lot shorter than John, but we've, done, we, we've, stored, we've begun a series on the doctrine of the church. This is week two, if you're visiting with us, and we'll, we'll only be here for a few more weeks. I want to do this about once a year, as I told you, just kind of a, a church doctrine, like checkup. Once a year, we're going to spend a few weeks discussing church doctrine. I think it's important that we do this, not just for the people in this room, but I think it's important we do this for our families as you take these truths home to your family. I think it's important we do this for the teenagers, the young adults, college students. What is church? Why do we do it? Who is here? You're much more likely to leave something and not be invested in something if you do not understand it. And so this is why we want a rich and full doctrine of the church. I want you to have a high view of the church. And um, we're going to be... We're going to begin the book of Ephesians not long after this, after we begin this study, or immediately after we end this study, and we'll continue to grow in our our view of the church in that study through that book. But last week, we we dealt with uh, what is the church? At least, uh, that wasn't necessarily the formal question, but that was one of the things we were trying to do, was to define what the church is, and uh, we we didn't give the fullest definition. We really only dealt with one definition of the church, one description of the church, and that was the church as the body of Jesus Christ, over which he is the head. This morning, we are going to deal with the who of the church. Who makes up the church? Who is here when we are here? Who all has joined us this morning? I don't necessarily just mean your names, but we're going to deal with the, the community of the church as we work through our study on ecclesiology, which, of course, is just the doctrine of the church, the, the word ecclesia is where we derive that term, the assembly. And so who makes up the church? As we think about our study this morning, maybe you can think of famous groups of collected individuals. Maybe you can think about a, a band, or maybe you can think about a famous Team, maybe throughout sports history. I guess since we're in Michiana, I guess the most maybe the famous team here would be the eighty the eighty six Bears, probably right. Maybe some of some of you, yes, and some of you are like, no, I don't want anything to do with that, right? 
Um, maybe you can think of in literature, maybe you can think of uh, famous groups. I think of Lord of the Rings, you think of the Fellowship of the Ring. They have one purpose, they're gathered together to do something. Who is here this morning? Who makes up this group? And of course, the obvious question would be, well, us, we are here. But who else is here? Those are some of the things we're going to deal with this morning. Because I think actually answering that question, who is here, who makes up this group, I think further strengthens not just our, our theology of church, but I think our theology of commitment. I think when you understand who is here, you'll recognize that you should be here too. In fact, it would be foolish not to be. Who makes up the church? Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. It was read for us just a few moments ago. And this morning, we are going to start... uh, I'm just going to give you a warning. I'm going to ask a lot of you uh, mentally this morning. All right? So... So strap on. We we have we have several passages that we're going to study, and we don't have we don't have all morning to do it. So uh, so strap on. But one of the things I want to do is I want to show you the the most. Imp- we're going to start with who's most important, and then we're going to trace some of that theology into how it affects us. All right. So we're going to start with the most important uh, members that have gathered with us this morning in our community. And then we're going we're gonna to study some theology specifically about the priesthood, and then we're going to see how that affects us this morning, all right? So the first thing I want to show you from various passages of Scripture, starting in Ephesians chapter 2, answering the question, who is here, who makes up the community of the church, is the answer, God. And that is the most important uh, contribution to who is with us this morning. But I want to be specific because I want to show you specifically that all three members of the Trinity are with us this morning. So who is with us when we gather? First of all, the triune persons of God. The triune person of God. So we're going to do some basic Trinitarianism as it relates to the doctrine of the church. And we're in Ephesians chapter 2, And I'm just going to give you a little bit of context, then we're going to read the final two verses of this. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul deals with with, uh, rich doctrine, and he does this to set up the doctrine of the church. He's going to go into how this doctrine affects the the church, but he's going to start in chapter 2 talking about, starting in verse 11, talking about how we've all been brought uh, to this community by the person of Jesus Christ, specifically, all right, specifically the Gentiles. So we as non-Jewish people, so in the New Testament you have this contrast between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, You might be a Jewish individual with us this morning, but chances are most of you are not. Okay. So he's going to talk about how we are all brought to to the church, into the community, through Christ, specifically the Gentiles. This is what was read for us earlier, verse 11. Therefore remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision that is made in the, hand, the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. So Gentiles did not receive the full 
understanding of the revealed Messiah. Initially, they did not receive all the benefits of the promise of the Old Covenant. But through Jesus Christ, we are now welcomed into the family of God. We're going to study this more deeply. We're going to go really through this in depth when we study Ephesians. But I'm just kind of summarizing it for you right now. And we've been brought into one church. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is people who are not of the original, but you are brought in. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this household of God here is the church, and we've been brought into it in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, right? So we're, oh, this is a growing congregation, growing church, into a holy temple. There's another image for the church. In him, that is God, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the first thing, the first things I want to show you in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the Father is with us this morning and the Spirit is with us this morning. Now you understand Trinitarianism, all right? They're one God. They're three persons. So and you say, well, that's impossible. Just so you know, just want to catch you on some basic Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, as you read the Bible, there's, ne- there's not necessarily any one passage of Scripture that, that fully unpacks the idea of the Trinity. Okay? It's, it's, it's an assumed doctrine in the Bible. There are many passages in the Bible that refer to each of the members of the Trinity individually. For example, Matthew 12, 28, but if I, Jesus, that's Jesus speaking, cast out demons by the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God, that's God the Father, has come upon you. So we've got Jesus teaching three distinct members of the same Trinity, that is God. You can just think about the mission of the church. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's uniqueness and there is distinction. But the Father, God the Father, and God the Spirit are with us this morning in particular ways, and we're not even going to fully go into how, what they're doing this morning. We, don't, we, don't, we don't really don't have time for that. I wish we did. But I want to convince you and show you of the, the amazing reality that as we gather as the people of God, we gather with God and we gather with God the Spirit, God the Father and God the Spirit. Look what this passage says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this is the church. The structure, the holy temple, verse 21, in him you are also being built together, that is, you are, you are being built together as individuals into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when you came together this morning, you didn't just come together to see your friends. You know that. You didn't just come together because maybe you were lonely. Maybe you were, and I pray that the church has helped you with that. But that's not the primary reason that you should have come. And we recognize that what takes place when we gather as a congregation is that it is not just a gathering of individuals. It's not just a gathering of people. You have been built into a dwelling place for God. So what Christ has done 
in a draw and drawing people to himself, both Jews and Gentiles, who confess his name for salvation, is he has brought together people who meet together with God. Now, I'm going to show you why this is so significant in just a few moments. Now, you understand just some basic Old Testament understanding here. We have, the, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple, that this was the place where God's presence would dwell. The people would go to the tabernacle or they'd go to the temple and they would worship him there. But it's not the same as how we do it here because of the thing priesthood we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But this morning, you and I gather around the incredible, astounding reality that God is building in us and growing in us as individuals, maturing us and sanctifying us, and he's gathering us together to dwell with one another with the person of God. Why should you attend church? Because you will miss the presence of God if you don't. But how specifically does God, how specifically is God's presence with us? God is with us by His Spirit. God is with us through His Spirit. God the Spirit. And so there's incredible co-unity here. Although they are distinct, they are co-equal and they are unified. And so God is, God is expressing himself in his presence with us through God the Spirit. And we get, we get sort of an idea of, of what's going on here through his Spirit in verses 20 and 21 because uh, he's going to get to chapter 4. We'll study this again when we get to Ephesians. But he, we're going to get to chapter 4, and he's going to say, through the apostles and the prophets that God gifted through the Spirit is the church, grow, is, is the church built, and the church is, is grown. And so, so God and His Spirit working in each one of you, contributing to the body, is one of the ways that God is here, using the gifts that God has given you on behalf of the congregation and for the congregation in the lives of one another is one of the ways that God's presence is here through the living out of His Spirit. So God is with us. God's Spirit is with us. This is what makes this gathering different than any other kind of religious gathering in the world and in history. Because no other faith, no matter what they tell you, no matter how hard they try to convince you, no matter what documents they have or texts they have, can truly say and die for the reality that when the people of God meet, the people of God meet with God. He's with them. Now, of course, you recognize within basic Trinitarian theologies that theology, there's a third person here. And I want to show you that Jesus is also with us. The Son is also with us. Now, I know how some of you take notes, and so you were, you were writing down the outline and all the 
passages of Scripture, and that's fine, but now we're actually going to get to those passages, all right? But in order to get, before we get to those passages, we're going to go back to the Old Testament because I think we have to do some important foundational work. I'm going to just say, I'm going to say what we're going for, and then we're going to back up and work into it, okay? Jesus is here with us this morning as our perpetual and perfect high priest. Now, I want to show you why and what that means more fully. So we're going to do some biblical theology of the priesthood in the Bible. You can go to these passages if you want. Uh, we're going to look at one passage more specifically, and it's in, the, it's in, it's in uh, Numbers chapter 16. So if you want to go there, you, you can, but I'm going, to, I'm going to just do some foundation work before that. I told you I'd ask a lot of you this morning, so be patient with me as I speak quickly. The priesthood, as you understand in the Old Testament, was, was, was unique specifically in its workings to the Old Covenant. I've already mentioned that we have this idea of God's presence, of the people of God dwelling with, uh, the people of God dwelling with people, but it was different uh, in the temple and in the tabernacle in the Old Testament because they had to have some sort of representation before God, and this was the function of the priests. Exodus 40 is, is sort of the, the, the founding, the origin of the Old Testament priesthood. In Exodus 40, in verse 12, it says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance, this is Aaron, the brother of Moses, of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and shall wash them with water, that's the purification that would take, take place, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him. This makes him separate from other people, that he may serve me as priest. So God appoints this first high priest, which is Aaron. You shall then bring his sons and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may also serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to, listen to this, this is important, a perpetual or ongoing priesthood throughout their generations. So God initiates, God appoints the priesthood so that the people can worship him through a representative. You say, well, why did they need a representative? Because, there, because God's holiness was too much, and this was, uh, God's holiness was, was, was too big. This was the order that God set in place so that his people could come before him with representation. And so the priests had to do a certain number of things. They had to go through purifications and cleansings so that they could represent God. You say, what did the priests do? They were mediators before God. Exodus 30, verse 1, Aaron shall make an atonement on its horns twice a year, this is the horn of the bull, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. So the high priest specifically would go into the Holy of Holies and make an atonement, atonement offering before God as a representation for the people. So it was mediation before God and it was appeasement of his wrath, because God was too holy and separate from his people. Hebrews 8, 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. These gifts and sacrifices were to appease the righteous wrath of God. Thus, it is necessary for a priest to have something to offer. Say, so what does all this have to do with us? That's a good question to ask. Just keep it in the back of your mind. Now, I told you we're going to be in Numbers chapter 16. We're going to spend a few moments here. 
with all of that background about the priesthood, founded, first high priest was founded in Exodus 40, first high priest was Aaron, the function to mediate between the people of God, the Jews, and God himself, and they offered gifts and sacrifices as appeasement before God. Because God is holy and he requires this, he deserves this. Now, I don't know where you are in your Bible reading. Maybe you do a new Bible plan every year. Maybe you, you do that. How many of you do the read through the Bible in a year thing? Any of those? All right, cool. Um, how many of you are in the first five books of the Bible right now? Okay, great. Anybody in Numbers? All right, a few of you. Excellent. Well, um, Numbers tends to be one of those books that people get all amped up about reading their Bible. I'm going to start reading my Bible through in a year. And they read Genesis, and Genesis is awesome, right? Then they get to Exodus, and Exodus was awesome. Then they get to Leviticus and Numbers, and they're like, this is hard, okay? Um, there's a few really, a few, there's really important stuff in those books. And this is a very, this is a fascinating and important passage, okay? And we do not have time to go all the way through it, so I am summarizing it for you. Numbers chapter 16 actually, actually entails for, or accounts for us the rebellion of a man named Korah and some of his friends. Verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Uh, verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. So Moses is the leader and primary representative of the people of Israel. Aaron is officially the representative as the high priest of Israel. And they said, and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy. So this is what the sons of Aaron, or this is what, sons of Aaron, sons of Aaron. This is what Korah and uh, all of these other sons in verse 1 are saying, are accusing of Aaron and Moses. Everyone in the congregation is holy, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? All right, so I'll catch, just explain very briefly what that means. You recognize God set up the priesthood because the people were unholy, and the priest would represent, represent the people who were unholy before a holy God. This was their function. So Korah and these other individuals come along and they say, you are just proud, and you are just trying to be the big man in the desert, and we're all holy here. What makes you the representative for us. Everyone in the congregation is holy. So basically what they're saying is we want to function on level with the priests. So they accuse Moses and Aaron of basically just power tripping and using the words of God inappropriately. So they rise up against the priests of God, specifically the high priest Aaron and Moses' authority. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fly through here. So if you don't know the story, God tells Moses and true followers to separate themselves from Korah and the other rebels. You say, why? Because he's going to judge them. So after Moses and followers of God are separated from Korah and the rebels, the earth opens up and swallows them. 
this functions not just as judgment against their uh, rebellion against God, but it actually functions on another level. It functions to vindicate the true leaders of Israel, to defend the true leaders of Israel. So who are they? Moses and Aaron. Moses as the authority, as the main leader, and Aaron as the, the representative of the high priest. Now I'm reading verse 28, number 16. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and it has not been of my own accord. So this was vindication. Moses is saying now to the people, Look, you can see that I have not done all these things. This has been of God. Verse 39. So Eliezer took the priest, Eliezer the priest, one of the priests, took the bronze censers, which those who had burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering as an altar to be a reminder of the people of Israel that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense. So this is God's way of saying, you are a priest because I said so. No one else gets to be a priest. So this, let me just re rewind where we are. Korah and the rebels come along and they say, we're all holy, we can all be priests. God judges them for the rebellion and says, absolutely not, these are the priests. And you should know, verse 39, no one gets to make themselves a priest. But you know what the Israelites do? They do what they always do. They complain. Look at me, verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now, one small detail that I failed to leave out, or failed to include, um, is that there was a, an uprising amongst the people of Israel as well against Moses and Aaron, and God sent a plague. So it wasn't just the sons of Korah who were judged, it was the people of Israel. So now the people of Israel come to Moses and they say, you're killing off the Lord's people. Even though he has said in verse, 30, verse 28, you should know that these are the works of the Lord. You say, well, this is an intense story. It, it is, but listen, it's actually not reached its most significant point yet. Number 17, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each of the father's house, from all their chiefs according to the father's houses, 12 staffs, write each man's name on his staff. Remember I told you that God judging Korah and his Korah's followers, the other rebels, was not just an act of judgment, it was an act of proving who the true priests were. Now God is going to do that again. See, how is he going to do that? He's going to do it much, much less, um, I don't want to say it powerfully, but he's going to do it a little more beautifully this, this second time around. Verse 3, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. So here's what you're going to get. You're going to get 12 staffs. These guys want to be priests? All right, whatever. You're going to get 12 staffs. You're going to have everyone write their name on it. These 12 men were probably either some of the elders or leaders of the church of the people of Israel. Then you're going to put all the staffs in the tabernacle. Verse 6, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all the chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses. Twelve staffs, and the staff of Aaron was among them. The staff of Aaron, the high priest. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, 
the staff of Aaron, the house of Levi, had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and bore ripe almonds. You say, well, what is that about? Here's 11 staffs that do nothing. Here's one staff that life comes from it. The first time, God vindicates his priests by saying, you stand against them and I will judge you. The second time, God vindicates his priests by saying, all right, get all the other chiefs. Have them bring their staff in the, in the tabernacle and I'll show you. I'll show you who I choose. And so Aaron's staff buds and brings flowers and brings life. So after all this judgment, God uses one more sign to vindicate his true priests. He gets these wooden staffs, dead, carved out pieces of wood, and life comes from it. Now look how the people respond in verse 12. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone. Verse 13, Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? So the first time they grumble at Moses, the second time they see the vindication, and they are, they are they're struck with awe at the holiness of God. They respond rightly. Are we all going to be judged? Now listen, what's the answer to that if you have no priest? Yes! Because you have no mediator between you and God. You have no representation before God's holiness and your unholiness, my unrighteousness, and God's wrath. But remember, the Bible says in Hebrews 8 that the first covenant was not faultless. That means there was a problem with it. And what is that problem with it? Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So you can get a good priest. You can get a perfect priest. God can appoint this priest, and he can represent the people of God in the Old Covenant, but what you know what can't happen? He can't change their soul. He can't make their heart clean. He can sprinkle your body with blood or water, and he can signify what needs to happen, but he can't actually do it, which is why you need a God-appointed priest that on another device of wood that was dead and carved out would spring life eternal. That through the vindication of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the appointed priest, he can die and take away sins. You say, what does all this have to do with church? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us 
through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more until you, as the day is drawing near. What, is it, what does the priesthood have to do with church? There is no church without Jesus, the pure and perfect high priest who does what those Old Testament, Old Covenant priests cannot do. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapters 8 and 9. The priest has to go and he has to get ceremonially cleansed. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Why? Because he's pure. You have to get a new high priest. Why? Because those priests will die. Jesus is the eternal priest. So Jesus is with us by his mediatory ministry before God the Father. This is, this is incredible theology. And so, for some reason, what pastors do is they rip out verses 24 and 25 and they just use it to beat you over the head. You should attend, you should attend, you should attend. Don't neglect the, the gathering of yourselves together. Stir up... Do you know why you shouldn't neglect the gathering of yourselves together? And do you know why you should stir up one another to love and good works? Because you can. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you need no other reason to gather with the people of God other than the reality that you can. And without that privilege... judgment because there's no representation between you and the Father. Apparently some people were doing this at the church that the writer of Hebrews was addressing. As is the habit of some. Don't be like those people who aren't coming. Now, again, we talked last week, obviously we said last week there are valid reasons, be physical or whatever, that you're not able to be with us if you'd like to. But I'm just going to say it this way. You neglect the meeting of, you neglect to meet together, you neglect to assemble yourselves together. You not only have a low view of your church, you have a low view of the great high priest. told you we're going to take that theology and we're going to bring it down to where we live. So who's with us this morning? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we as a people are here this morning. So now go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, I'm sorry, I have to hurry. 
as you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, (laughs) you see this, to be a holy priesthood. You see that? Do you remember what Korah and all those rebels wanted? Do you remember? Hey, we're all holy here. You don't get to be the important people. You know what this means? We have what they wanted. Because through the great high priest, he's created a priesthood where before God, we are holy. Amen? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He has made us people who were outsiders who needed a representation to come before him and if we didn't, we'd die. The old covenant insufficient, destined for wrath. And he says through Jesus Christ, the great high priest who once and for all has made these sacrifices, who even now stands before God. We love to talk about what Jesus did a long time ago on the cross, but right now Jesus continues to represent his people before God. We gather as a holy people, priests who can come before God the Father boldly with and on behalf of one another. This is why the theology of the church as God's priesthood is so remarkable. Because everything they couldn't do, we can Everything they wanted, God has given. The access that they lacked, He has provided abundantly through Jesus Christ. So this morning with us is the triune person of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And secondly, this morning, we have gathered as the unified people of God. This people, a living priesthood who gather as holy in God's sight to live out that holiness, to pursue that holiness. And listen, if you're with us this morning, your sins are not forgiven. You've not taken your sins before Jesus Christ, confessed them, and asked for his forgiveness. There is no mediator between you and God, which means his wrath can fall. But Paul tells us there's one true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And all you need to do is confess and believe. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he has died and was raised and you will be safe. It is through this great high priest alone that we have access to him. And what happens when the people of God gather together is the people who are together who are together because of God, live out this divine, miraculous privilege of being one of the holy priests of God, free to worship, freely before His throne, free to enjoy Him. So who makes up the church? The church community is gathered by God to meet together in order to meet with him.
The church community is gathered by God to meet together in order to meet with him. We've been gathered together by God. Because this great high priest has given his life. We may become a kingdom of priests. Gathered by God. It's only through God that we come together to acknowledge we're here together for God. And we meet with God. Listen, this is why what takes place here is so significant. And what takes place in every Bible-believing, Christ-proclaiming body around the world is so significant. When you get together and have a Bible study, that's, that's fantastic, that's amazing, but it's not the, same place, not the same thing as corporate worship. Stay home, have home church or whatever, it's, it's not the same thing as corporate worship. It's not. Because God has reserved this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests, this kind of worship that takes place when the people of God gather for the gathering of his body, the praise of his glorious grace. 